Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Walensky. We're talking about books, about theater, about film, and sometimes about politics. My guest is Carl Hyacin, whose latest novel is Squeeze Me. There are, I can count, 15 novels. This is the 15th, I think. Adult novels. There are six young adult novels, three books of selected columns, because Carl Hyacin writes every Sunday in the Miami Herald. And uh, there are also a couple of other books, including Team Rodent, How Disney Devours the World. What year was that? Oh, I wish I could remember. It was a few years ago. The devouring has continued, but it's been some years. I just don't remember when. Well, let's talk a little bit about Squeeze Me. As I was telling you before we went on the air, I'd been having trouble focusing on books and getting more than four or five, ten pages done at a time. And Squeeze Me grabbed me, <laughs> and uh, I found up, wound up reading the last 150 pages in one fell swoop. And you were saying that in this time, current times, writing satire is difficult. It really is. And I was either lucky or... I don't know how you want to look at it. I was able, because the turnaround time was going to be tight, I was finishing this book in the early months of the pandemic. And so I was able to be as current as I could. But when you have the lunacy factor in, in politics and culture as, as high as it is now, it's still a moving target. And when you're writing satire, you, you always think you're on the cutting edge or a little bit ahead of the cutting edge. And in this case, Every day I'd pick up the, the paper and brace myself for some headline, something happening uh, at the White House or at, at Mar-a-Lago that was more absurd than anything I could invent. I mean, it was a, it, it was just, a, you know, cringing in fear every day that something crazier was going to happen than I could think up. One issue I had was that if you wake up in the middle of the night in California, it's morning in the East Coast. And the tweets have been coming for four hours. <laughs> and you can't fall back to sleep. Well, you know, I'll tell you something, and this is not a, a major confession, but I've never looked at his Twitter feed. It's really just diarrhea at, at, a, uh, at an executive level. And it is upsetting if you take it. I mean, not the, the misspellings are amusing. The bad grammar, you know, kind of keeps your spirits up, uh, knowing that that's actually him with those little stubby fingers typing away, the, the punctuation, all of that. At one level, you can be amused, and especially if you, if you write the kind of books I write. But at another level, as a citizen and a resident of the planet, you, you are also horrified and terrified. The book itself, Squeeze Me, you made a choice. And honestly, for me, after November 4th, I was able to laugh. I don't know if I would have been able to laugh if I'd started the book's three or four days earlier, if that makes sense to you. It does. Before the election, reading a satire in which Donald Trump, or a character very much like Donald Trump, plays a role, such a large role, 
it would have been hard to laugh because of yeah. whatever was going to come down. But when you decided to write the book, was it set in, it appears to be January 2022, <laughs> after the pandemic, when Trump is in the second term? It takes place in the post-pandemic, uh, mostly in, in Palm Beach and at, at a Trump-like mansion, you know, Casa Bellicosa. But I, I fuzzed up some of the time details a little bit on purpose, uh, and it wasn't clear. There was no, you know, none of the punching bag nature of the campaign or any of that in there. And it was more setting the scene, but I purposely fudged it up. But being Norwegian, which means there's no optimism anywhere in, in my DNA, I wrote it with the idea uh, that we're, you know, they were, we're all spiraling down and that, that uh, he'd be around for a while. Now, having said that, I also told my editor I would give anything if all interest subsided in this guy on November 3rd. Of course, that's too much to hope for, regardless of the election results. But no, it, that's what I mean by having a moving target. I mean, and there was always a question, and uh, and I'd already written the book. The book was done and out when he when he got uh, COVID, and that wasn't even a, a plot twist that I had imagined. The chopper ride to Walter Reed and that, uh, the whole this, the ceremonial gasping return, all of that would have been a great fodder. But you're right. How do you laugh at that, knowing the possible grave consequences for the the entire country and, and democracy in general. And I think in my case, and you, we and I, you and I have, have talked about this before. I mean, the, the novels are a selfish enterprise. I don't care what any writer tells you. The, the, the audience you're, you're first and foremost writing for is yourself. And in this case, for me, just like the columns, it, the humor is a form of psychotherapy. The alternative is to go mad. And if you have an outlet, and obviously a, a target as large and lurching a self-caricature like this. It raises the stakes, but it's also harder to be funny. Let's go back to the origins of this book. The therapy part I get, but the idea of writing the moving target, knowing yeah. it's a moving target, what prompted you to do that? And I understand from an afterward, your editors weren't happy. <laughs> what do you mean? It struck me in the afterward that you sort of had to overcome some doubt let's put it that way, about writing a book about Trump. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, I was l lucky because I had worked, as you know, for many, many years with Sonny Mehta, was my editor, and he passed away while we were working on this book. And so uh, Peter Gathers, who took over, and I, and we talked about it because, you know, it was like I said, every day there was a new headline and, and they had enough faith, you know, I wasn't going to tear it up and start over. But at the same time, uh, let's get back to this whole, the, the whole Nordic sense of doom and gloom, was I had a feeling in my mind, if I wrote a book set in a world in which he had just been reelected, he would lose the election because that would just be the opposite of what the, the plot, you know, unfolded. So I thought in a way I could jinx this whole thing. If you're all in for something, it's a jinx. It was, it was one I was giddy about the possibility of it turning out the way it actually has, although who would have known what the last few weeks have been like. But but if you can come, come at it from that point of view, also the books and all the novels, going, going back to the beginning, I'm always trying to be topical writing in, in real time. In this case, this started out, Richard, as a novel. You know, I just had to get the pythons have to be in it because they, they're in such a, a huge 
invasive forest in Florida now. They're, you know, eating their way out of the Everglades, these giant pythons. And I'm always, a, you know, I'm, I'm always rooting for predators in these novels. That's my first love always. So I, I had to get, you know, I figured, I know, and you just think if you're as sick as I am, you think pythons, Mar-a-Lago. Yeah, yeah, that, that would work. The protagonist, female protagonist, uh, Angie Armstrong, she captures wildlife mm -hmm. and the story revolves around pythons. I didn't know that pythons were an issue in Florida. Just Google. You'll see some pictures that'll keep you up even later than you're already staying up now. They got a world record just a few weeks ago that was, I think, uh, close to 18 feet or something. I mean, it was huge. And this has been going on for years. They got into the Everglades. People let them go as pets. They got scattered by Hurricane Andrew, and they've, they've really decimated the Everglades uh, ecosystem and the smaller animals. I mean, up to eating full-grown deer. And so in my mind, it's not, and I, I know this is going to sound morbid, but it's not a huge leap to, to go from a white-tailed deer to a small or even medium-sized individual who lives in, in Palm Beach County on, on the island. And they do swim, these snakes, and so it's not a big swim for them to get across uh, the intercoastal over there. And I think it's only a matter of time. The pythons are going to get to Palm Beach eventually, and I, I just wrote this novel for everyone who, who can't be there when it happens. You do something interesting, which is that you set it up so that the reader figures out what's going on long before the other characters, and that, that was deliberate. Yeah, and I, I'm guilty of that sometimes. In the no They're not really whodunit. It's a question of, uh, it's sort of a now what? And uh, but Angie, you know, the, the, the business she's in, she's a wildlife removal expert. And we have those all over Florida. You see the trucks everywhere because the state's grown so fast that every day there's some conflict between uh, the, the growing suburbs, whether it's a raccoon in, in somebody's attic or a, an alligator in somebody's swimming pool. These services have popped up everywhere. You just dial a number, somebody shows up and, and catches the animal and then takes it and relocates it somewhere. And I had started out with the Angie character as being a man because that it's a business dominated by men. But it, about 50 pages in, I said, wait a minute, this would be a lot more fun if it was a woman who, who had her own business. There's no reason why she couldn't. You know, it's not, you don't have to get a pit and wrestle these things. You just have to know how to capture them. So that's where Angie sort of came from. I just thought it would be cool to have her in this job. The phone rings all hours of the night. Somebody says, you know, there's a possum in my Range Rover and she's, you know, she's got to go noose it. When you were talking about the pythons, I kept thinking of the rumors of baby alligators growing in the New York City subway system. If you remember that story. Oh yeah. This has been, as I said, if you just Google pythons, Florida, the Burmese pythons, and it is and every week there's a new story about someone. Uh, there was a lady in South Florida who opened up her washing machine and one was coiled around the, the drum. A lot of times they get in cars. And, and this is also sad, but when the big ones, they do come into a neighborhood, the, the first telltale sign is the pet population begins to diminish. These are some serious critters. I thought they deserved a place in a, in, in a novelist, you know, as disturbing as my novels can be. So on, on some level, this was always there. And I'm sure you have a file of other little events like that. Too. Oh, I want to know. Yeah. Once you decide that 
it's going to be Mar-a-Lago, or as you call it, Casa Bellicosa. <laughs> then you got to bring in the president. You're very clear that by calling him Mastodon, which is his Secret Service name, you kind of steer away from having to be specific yeah. beyond that. No, and, and again, you're dealing with, in satire, people will obviously see the resemblance, but you also want to have some latitude as not being handcuffed, the individual himself and his behavior, because he's, he's off the wall on any given day. Like you said, that the tweets start early in the morning on about his seventh Diet Coke. Uh, he, he just gets, you know, all jacked up and starts tweeting and you can't keep up with that. So instead, the fiction gives you the latitude and the opportunity to just have it be close enough, but then you can do your own thing with the character. His behavior in the novels probably, I mean, it's probably scary how recognizably close it would be to those who are close to him. And, you know, he, 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 I don't want to say floats in and out because he, he lumbers in and out, but the messaging is the same. Uh, and the demonizing of minorities, which is a subtext of, of this, this book, which is supposed to be funny, but there is that element too. There's a you know character who's an immigrant who who arrives from Bimini in the middle of the night, you know, on a boat, midnight boat, which still happens on a regular basis here, and and uh, is accused of a crime he doesn't commit. And so that gets wrapped up in the story as well. But that also is not not far fetched. One thing you do is you create a first lady who is nothing like, other than physical appearance, Melania Trump, or Melania Trump. I still don't know how to pronounce it, and I don't care. And you make the president in his speeches far more coherent than the actual one, which is kind of funny in itself. But the layout of Palm Beach, the layout of Mar-a-Lago, is that pretty much accurate? Is that what the place is like? The world of society, yes. The mansions that get rented out for these huge charity events in winter season, they all compete for whatever you know disease or disorder, and they're all good causes. It's a big business down there having these events. The events themselves are multi-million dollar events, and you think, gosh, if they just given the money directly to the cancer society, maybe that would have helped, you know. It's part of their world, and there's nothing wrong with that, but it does lend itself. There's a silliness. There's a paper that comes out every day called, they call it the shiny sheet. It's the Palm Beach Daily News, and it chronicles society in Palm Beach. So I subscribed to that while I was working on Squeeze Me, and it was inspirational. That's the publication that would give some notice and prominence is this group that supports the president, the, the Trumpettes. I'm not making that up. Whenever he's in town and he's at the club, they all dress up and they go try to, you know, get catch his eye and wave at him. And they're, you know, they're a patriotic group of women who just worship the guy. And so that was inspirational for me as not the idea that you had this fan group. They held their own benefits. They do things and they dress up like the Statue of Liberty, God forbid, or whatever. So there was a lot to work with there. I don't spend much time down there. I have friends who live down there. They're not part of that particular world, but I've been to Mar-a-Lago just once before he was president and several, many years before he was president. And he was there. He was, he was, uh, you know, hovering around the, the, the festivities and, you know, I, I got enough. For those who have had contact with actual information about Donald Trump that goes beyond the apprentice or celebrity apprentice, 
the fictional guy who got elected has nothing to do with that creature who we knew about from New York City. Right, exactly. And, and, and you know this, too, from your friend, people that were in the real estate business in New York. If you talk to them about Donald Trump before his political career began, they laughed. He was not a major player. He was not a heavy hitter. He wasn't using his own money on anything. And he was renting his name out to anybody that would pay to hang it on the side of a building, and which continued up until you know the presidency. But the people who knew they were really in the business, that were players in that in that Manhattan real estate market, would just roll their eyes if you mentioned his name. They'd, I have a friend who does, and he said, "Oh, and he was actually very amusing to be around at parties." He said, "Hey, Don's Donald's funny if you last, but come on." And then they were as astonished as anybody that he turned that reality show into, a, you know, into a political career, basically. We're going to talk more about politics, particularly Florida politics, because what's happening there now is just beyond measure with the virus. But a couple of quick questions. There's a character who's an ex-governor. If I recall correctly, he's in other books. Yes, he is. Skink is his sort of reborn name, and he's in several other books. I sort of bring him out of the swamp uh, whenever it seems suitable, and with the pythons and everything that's been happening, I, I thought he would have a place in this book, and he did. Was there a book where he was the main character? There must have been. It was actually a book for young readers, Richard. I mean, he's been a big character in other books, but not the main character. And he isn't here either, but he's been around in other books. But the one book in which he was the main character was a book called uh, Skink that came out a few years ago. That was for younger readers. I finally figured out that they were well-equipped to, to deal with with somebody like him. You know, he's sort of on the edge of the law, but he was, a, you know, his background was he was a Vietnam War hero. He was talked into running for governor of Florida. He lasted only a couple of months in Tallahassee because of the corruption. He just went nuts one day and, and or went sane, depending on how you look at it, and just ran out of the governor's mansion naked and disappeared into the swamp. And so I, I trot him out for special occasions, and it seemed like this would be a good one. Conk pearls. Mm -hmm. I had never heard of them. Oh, they're beautiful. I hesitate to say too much about them because they, the, the, the market is already booming, but they're beautiful they can be pink, they can be rosy, they can sort of be pale lavender. They come from a queen conch shell, which you're familiar with conchs, of course, and and in the Bahamas and Turks and Caicos and, and the Caymans and Puerto Rico, they you know, the conch fishermen who are getting the meat out of the conch so they can become conch fritters and whatever, you know, you see on your menu. Once in every, I don't know, 10,000 shells will find this pearl, these pearls, which are gorgeous. And so I, I have a friend who's a jeweler who, who's been using them for years and years, making terrific jewelry. So I decided that they would have a place in this book. And uh, the first lady who's, who goes by Mockingbird in the book, that's her Secret Service nickname, Mockingbird. They become actually evidence and what people believe is a crime and isn't. And then they, she hears her husband talking about them during a speech and, and gets online and decides she's got to have some too. There's a lot about the Secret Service. Did you do research on that? Yeah, I read a couple of books and then I and and as much as I could online. In my reporting days in the Herald before I was writing the column, I deal ever deal with Secret Service. We didn't have a, a president who was here very much in Florida. I mean I dealt with the DEA a lot 
and FBI to a certain extent, but I didn't know that much about this. I mean, I know what you read and not what you see in the movies, but I did a fair amount of research on the Secret Service. Yeah. Carl Hyacin, let's switch gears to Florida. <laughs> DeSantis strikes me at this point. How do people like that sleep at night? I don't get it. I don't think he has any trouble sleeping. You know, I mean, this COVID thing has sort of exposed him in the same way that it it did the president because, and now, of course, we're finding out more and more the Sun Sentinel in Fort Lauderdale has been doing a hell of a job tracking how the numbers have been. And the Herald has too, the writing about how every true statistic about this is, is basically has had to be pried out of the DeSantis administration. And now we find out that a couple of weeks before the election, the Department of Health stopped started monkeying around so that they weren't giving the death figures, the daily death figures, up until after the election was over, and then they started giving the correct numbers again. I mean, you can only conclude that, like everything else, the facts were being manipulated and withheld from the public, in this case, to protect the president and not remind people that we had a raging pandemic, I think. Richard, you remember when back in May, I think it was, or April, when DeSantis went up to the White House with his little pie charts and his board, and he and Trump had a big congratulatory photo op talking about how the coronavirus was conquered in Florida. It was in April, and within a month, uh, six weeks, cases tripled, and it just blew up. And he looked like a fool. So now when he's asked about all, and he blasted the press at the time saying, you were skeptical about how I was doing this and you all ought to be ashamed. And we went on Fox News and now, now he runs from his press, he, he literally runs from press conferences because it's been exposed in the most tragic, tragic way down here and all around the country. What happens when you don't take a leadership role and have more restrictions early on would have and had them sustained longer than they were in this, we wouldn't be in the situation we're in now. How come the Cubans from Miami voted for Trump? That was kind of a surprise. Well, I think it certainly surprised the Democrats, but also keep in mind that not all of them did. They had gone overwhelmingly for Hillary Clinton only four years earlier, and they went this time much less for Biden. And I think it was because the Republicans launched this big thing that Biden was a socialist. And you can imagine the same people who voted for Hillary think Biden's more of a socialist. I mean, that is really quite amusing, but it's just a very cynical, ever since I can remember the Castro card gets played in politics every political season in Miami. And and they, I think, succeeded in scaring a, a lot of, especially the older Cuban Americans to think that uh, Trump was their savior, which is a joke because not that long ago, he was trying to get into Cuba and get the get sort of the ground set for a hotel or casino projects there and things like that. Not casinos, but hotel and resort projects, even while he was denouncing Fidel Castro. But, you know, that was well publicized in front of the election that, that, that Trump, the businessman, uh, was frantic to get into Cuba and get a piece of the action. And none of the hypocrisy seemed to bother the voters. And they were just deluged with these anti-social, you know, they're, they're scared that, you know, the city's going to get overtaken by radical. I mean, it was just, it was preposterous, but it's not just Miami. Trump would have won Florida without that shift in Hispanic vote. That wasn't what decided the numbers in Florida at all. He would have won, just not by as much when they take it apart. But look around the whole country, look at what they've bought into and what there's, some of them are still clinging to. And you realize 
the depth of, and I want to say devotion, it's the not paying attention and the, the intellectual laziness to get all your information from from One America Network uh, or Newsmax or, you know, you go to these the right wing sites and you sit there all day and you're, you know, your underwear and your black socks and you get all worked up and you clean your AK-47 and then you put on your kilt and you go to Washington, D.C., you know, like they did last. It is beyond satire and also tragic. Rebecca Jones, invading someone's house, taking their computer for the sole purpose of hiding COVID statistics. Actually, they're trying to bust her for an alleged hack. I don't think they're trying to get statistics. I think they're trying to harass her because she embarrassed DeSantis when she left the department, you know, and said, you're not getting all the information. I'm going to do my own COVID dashboard. And he's been gnashing his teeth. and, and, And first he said he didn't know anything about the raid. Then he admitted he knew about the investigation and raid, but he got very huffy about calling it a raid. Now, remember when Michael Cohen's office was raided, DeSantis was there, one of the first things, denouncing the raid. And it was the same thing. It's an execution of a search warrant. But but when they come in, you know, a group of armed men come in to get evidence, uh, it's called a raid. If it's a, a Republican who's getting raided, it's a raid. If it's a, a someone who disagrees with DeSantis or who has taken another position on COVID, it's just an execution of a search warrant. He's such a crybaby, and he's very much like Trump in that sense. And again, those are the kind of qualities that, you know, lend themselves to satire at one level, the petulance, which, you know, I was able to sort of use and squeeze me. But in real life, everyday headline is that this is the guy, this mini Trump, he really is outdoing himself and outdoing the guy that he idolizes. Is he going to get reelected? Republicans have done a, a, a good job of getting people out and turning them out. I don't know. You know, he almost lost the first time. He, it was a very close race. There was a recount. Nobody sued or challenged it, and he won. And this time around, by all rights, he should win by a lot more in a couple of years. But it's all going to depend on, I think, COVID. It's all going to depend. Here's the interesting thing. And again, I don't want to get too deep into the politics of it, because part of the reason I wrote Squeeze Me was for a, a reprieve in a way. But by talking about running in 2024, Trump is really messing with the heads of you know, messing around with the, the heads and the futures of like the Sanus who has his eye on higher out. All these people that thought they could ride the Trump wave, the last thing they expected was with, was that that, you know, that clown was going to be around and try it again in four years. They're all looking for an, a way in. I mean, and there's a whole herd of them out there and their loyalty to this guy may have cost them their own political future. None of the loyalty is ever reciprocated, which kind of cracks me up. No, one of the reasons I wrote the novel was just to try to get a bigger picture, not just setting scenes that none of what happens in this book is far-fetched. And I guess that's that's what's different for me about this than, than other novels, where I've cranked it up a couple notches. But I always try to root it in some sort of real life news event or, or clippings or something. In this case, it was playing almost catch up to, to reality instead of trying to jump ahead of it. That's been true for the last four years. Um, you can't read The Onion and really know it's The Onion. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and Florida, as you and Dave Barry point out, is always one step ahead of the rest of the country, which I don't understand. Maybe you have a... Huh. 
I haven't, but I mean, this has been true for many, way before Trump, but it's always been a magnet for, for characters, desperados, outlaws, dreamers, uh, entrepreneurs, and, you know, but every bad trend that breaks across the continental United States seems to start in South Florida. And um, we had led the country in identity theft and money launder. Every criminal, white collar criminal category you could think of, we were there in the 80s. We were there way before the rest of the world, the rest of the country figured out what was going on. And I think that's a reason that Florida has attracted so many novelists. You know, I'm, I mean, I, I was born here, but there's a lot of writers who spend a lot of time here now. John Grisham, who I know is, is setting quite a few novels down here now. Stephen King still comes down here to write. It's that kind of a place where you, uh, you know, it's like, like a, tra- a traffic accident. You don't want to slow down and look, but how do you not look? Elmore Leonard moved down there too. Yeah, he was here. He loved South Beach. He picked a lot of good characters off the, off the landscape too. Part of it is sort of the, the opportunistic nature of observing things as a novelist. And part of it is, in my case, it's all overflow from the journalism, from the news business, because I see these stories coming across the transom every day and I send them to friends and I, I usually say, see, you thought I was making this stuff up and here it happened and, and it's still happening. Your most recent column deals with five kinds of presidential pardons. And as I started reading it, I was thinking, oh, Carl Hyacin writing satire here, but it isn't really. No, unfortunately, I just was trying to make it easier for Trump to to know what to call some of the pardons. For instance, if you're going to pardon someone for a crime that he's going to commit between now and the inauguration, uh, you call it a transitional pardon. Uh, and then if it's a crime he committed during the campaign, you have another name for it. But I mean, I think he's going to have to spruce it up a little bit just politically. But I think you're going to see a whole slew of outrageous. I don't know whether he's going to try to pardon himself, but I mean, he's probably going to try to pardon the kids. It it doesn't work on state crimes, uh, but I I don't know what it, I'm not sure it works with the, with IRS auditing. It's going to be a sad day for a lot of defense lawyers when he does that, you know, um, because, you know, they're all, they're probably all waiting. There are rumors that one of the reason Barr quit was in order to get a pardon. Oh, God, I don't, I don't know about it. I think, I think there was uh, either a career opportunity or some, you know, there, there was obviously something going on uh, that he, he thought he wanted to leave before the end. And maybe it was just a, you know, maybe his tax advisor says, if you get out now, I don't know, you know, who, who knows? They're they're all they all deserve their little special place in uh, in in the, the the chapter of the last four years. One of the questions about Trump is: Is he suffering from dementia, or is it just the Adderall and the hamburgers that's driving him a little bit mad? Uh, people who've known him for years says he hasn't changed. Oh, no, I don't think there's any difference. I do think that, uh, and, and it's hard to campaign. I mean, I'm not cutting him any slack. It was hard for Biden and doing all that campaigning. Even for a young person, it would be exhausting. But he certainly, at some during some appearances, see, it seems to be a little more jacked up. And so I think the Adderall, wouldn't, it wouldn't surprise me at all. Um, and the Diet Cokes, if you drank a dozen a day, I don't think we ever got a, an honest medical report while he was in the office because you, I mean, you're going to tell me there's no plaque on his heart and 
his uh, cholesterol is fine. And seriously, but I mean, that's what, you know, the cult wants to believe. I don't think his basic personality is anything. He's just vindictive and petty and small. And he's, you know, he's, he's not an intellectual. He doesn't read. Uh, that's the big joke when, you know, while he's in the way, whoever's the last person in the room with him, the last smart person in the room with him is the one that that's what he's going to take from the meeting because he's not going to read more than a, a couple paragraphs of anything. And, and that's not even a secret. I don't think he's crazy. I, I think he is what he's always been. Uh, lots of people got suckered and they're going to cling to it as long as they possibly can. And the, the, the polls that show that's the majority of Republicans thinking the elections were stolen. Well, then here's the truth. They're idiots. There have been 86 different judges, juries, uh, impanelments that have found no evidence of widespread fraud that would affect the election in any way. And, and yet they're going to cling to this because <laughs> they just they invested in those in those big boat flags by God. And uh, and they're going to they're going to go down waving those. But they're just the truth, Richard, is just not very smart. They're not looking at. I mean, these are Republican judges and some that slam dunk this clown. And they, first of all, and the idea of Rudy Giuliani, as long as we're talking about fiction, that's it. There wasn't, I didn't get a Rudy character in to squeeze me, but looking back, if I had a regret, if I had known Rudy would have reemerged in the gargoyle state that he is, that would have been something to throw in the plot too. He's a character unto himself. I think it's impossible. There will eventually be a film devoted to Rudy, and it will obviously be a comedy. You can't have it any other way. No, he's, he, it's, it's hard to look at him now without thinking of, of Kate McKinnon and Saturday Night Live. I mean, it's, it's just like impossible to, to look at Trump without thinking of Alec Baldwin. I mean, it's really difficult because the, they're just so outsized and, and so preposterous. I mean, these are things, this, these are tough times to, to write satire. Who, they're, they're going to, they're appearing at the, you know, they announced it's going to be at the hotel and then it's at a, their big press conferences in front of what, what was that? The a landscaping store or something. In, uh, oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> Instead of a hotel, the wrong place. Not the Four Seasons. And it's next to a, a porn store, a porn store and it. You couldn't have invented that if you had a bunch of screenwriters in a room, comedy writers, saying, what, how can we make these people look any stupider? Let's have them have a press conference here. And there he was. Carl Hyacin, first of all, you went into Mar-a-Lago. Is it as tacky as it must be? The event I was at was in the ballroom, so you went into the alcove. It was, I would say, ostentatious, but I wouldn't say, to be fair, that it was more ostentatious than a lot of places in Palm Beach. The area we were in, there were no gold, gold toilet seats and the rest of the stuff that, that Trump prefers. But, um, but I mean, it was ostentatious in a way of, you know, hearkening back to the maybe the 20s and 30s, you know, sort of thing. But it had been redone. But I, you know, first of all, writers are not judges of taste anyway. What do I know? But I mean, it just was a fancy Palm Beach mansion, really. And again, this was the against the backdrop of me not, I wasn't drinking it in as someone who's going to write about it someday or thinking about it in terms that the guy who owns this is going to run for president. And that, I would have laughed out loud if anyone had said that then. Hollywood has not really beckoned to Carl Hyacin, which is surprising because your books are kind of in the same category in a way as Elmore Leonard, though you're a bit more political. 
they're perfect for miniseries, and yet the only thing that's come up so far was that one film of striptease. Well, they, they made a movie out of the, one of my kids' books, the first kid book called Hoot. They, they made a film of that as well. I've got boxes, I mean, probably three cardboard boxes full of screenplays that have been written over the years on, on the different novels. So it's not like they haven't tried. But I will say this, the difference, Leonard's the, the structure, his plot structures are different. They're more they're probably more linear and they lend themselves more. My plots get a little uh, layered, but there's some good, very good writers who do that stuff very well, obviously the Coen brothers and others. But the other thing is a lot of the humor in the novels is in the narrative tone. And it's a hard thing to put up on the screen. You can have funny lines and funny scenes, but it's a hard thing to sustain the, uh, a satiric narrative tone without a narrator. And I think that's they've struggled with that. I don't have any regrets. I mean, I there's you know there's two or three things in the works now, but they're always in the works, and I wish them well. And I, I wish the screenwriters. Uh, there's a couple books they want to do mini series of, or the limited series, whatever you call that. On, and I and I I'm you know good luck with it, but it's not what I do. I mean, the, the discipline required to do like a, a, a 60 minute episode of a TV show or, or 27 minute, you know, half hour, uh, the discipline of the structure of that writing is not what I do. I mean, my characters, when they start out, they're running all over the place. I have no idea how the book's going to end when I start. I'm not good at that stuff. And, and there's lots of folks in Hollywood that are really good at it. Maybe one of these days they'll, they'll, you know, something will happen, but it's not something I lie awake at night hoping for, but trust me. Circling back to Squeeze Me, you bring up an interesting point. In the end, all of the plot elements do come together. And how far (laughs) were you (laughs) as this was going on? I mean, you knew obviously what exactly happened to Kiki Pugh. Yes. And you knew that Angie would be in it. Right. Here's what it is. I knew who was going to be standing at the end, but I, this is true in almost every one of the novels. It drives creative writing professors crazy, I think, if a student suggested this. But I don't really know exactly how it's going to end until about two-thirds of the way through the manuscript, about two-thirds. And I'm not a musician, but I would compare it to if you were a musician and you were writing a piece uh, on a piano and you, you kind of know what the last chord is going to be. You know, you, you kind of know how you want it to end. You're just not sure how you're going to get to that chord. And that's kind of the way I write. Do you hit dead ends then? Oh yeah, I do. I do a lot of rewriting. Every time I look at a chapter on the screen, I change something every single time. So between the very first version I wrote and, and the one that you saw, I, I bet I probably read every more than 50 times. And it may be something little, it may be a dialogue. It may be a you know a transition. It may be it may be an adverb. But I never I can't to this day look at anything I've, write, I've written and not want to tinker with it if I already haven't. I think a lot of writers are like that. We're pretty tough on ourselves, and you're your own best and worst editors. But um, I, I'm playing with it up until the minute I'm it's pried out of my hands by the editor and say we need that now we have to publish. I'm still dicking around with it. Never stops. Are there moments then of serendipity where you just write something and go, oh, wow, that answers the question that I had 50 pages ago? Yeah, there are those moments. There are moments, you know, where I know something works. Okay, that line works. So this 
this turn of events is going to work. And there are a lot of times when I think, what am I doing? I need to start outlining again. I need to remember what that's like. You know, there's a lot of moments of panic, and especially with humor, Richard, because, and Dave Barry will tell you this too, you can be off by one beat of a sentence, by just the wrong adverb, the wrong, wrong adjective, the wrong pacing, a comma in the wrong place can throw off a line or even a scene. So you wake up in the middle of the night worried about every. And you just, you know, you, you just agonize over it. And to the point where you've read it so many times, it's not funny to you anymore. But something inside you says, yeah, this is funny. This is going to work. But you're not smiling when you write it. You, you're as grim as could be. Can you name one of those moments in um, Squeeze Me where the light bulb comes on? Oh, gosh. Um, let me think. Wow. that's You got me there. I, I'm... I'd have to have the book in front of me. I could probably, I could probably flip to it. I'm thinking there's a, an element, there's a tanning bed in this, it's in this book, a presidential tanning bed that needs constant servicing because it sometimes doesn't work right. You, and the Secret Service can only do so much, but if you've got a president that jumps into a tanning bed, you want everything working right, you know? And so I, I had thought of, I've got to come up, and it was just, I, 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 how to get it in there, how to look, make it, well, it was plausible. All you have to do is look and you see that it was plausible. But so I came up with a character and I, I don't want to give it away. I knew there was going to be a malfunction. And the, uh, when it happened and I figured it out, I thought, okay, this solves, this solves that problem. And, but it was one of those things. It was just how, who's going to do this? How am I going to get him into the plot? What's, how's it going to be? And then it just, it just kind of happened. That doesn't account for the days where I'm staring at the screen going, I have painted myself into a freaking corner here. And then all of a sudden you're out. Carl Hyacin, Squeeze Me has now been out a while. Have you begun thinking, working on your next novel? Yeah, I usually alternate between the, the grown-up books, I call them, and the books for young readers. So I'm working on a book for, for kids now, and uh, it's it's a nice... I don't want to say it's a break, but it's a different pace, and it's a nice way to mix it up. And I love writing for kids. They're the, the, the coolest audience ever, and the letters that you get are just the absolute best. So I'm excited to to get going on that. But, you know, right now, like you, I'm, 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 I can maybe sleep a little bit at night, at least hopefully after January 20th. Your columns, it looks like there are kind of fewer of them lately, or... You're taking kind of a break? I took a month off. I went actually went down to Key West for a month and did some writing down there, hung out down there and, and saw some friends and did some fishing. I just took vacation time. I voted ahead. We voted ahead of time. So you can follow it. I saw that my vote had been counted in Florida and I wanted to be somewhere other than here for the election. And there's enough distractions in Key West and you walk around, it's just one of those places where I knew I wasn't going to be glued uh, to CNN or MSNBC, watching the, this lunatic pageant that we've seen the last month or so. So it was a selfish thing. It was just a, that's a good place to escape to and and uh, try to look beyond. And now you're back into it. Yeah, <laughs> I am right in the middle. Carl, next time you're around, maybe we see you with an actual book tour for the uh, young adult novel. God, that would be great if that started up again. If, uh, you know, a year from now, if that could be happening, that would, I think everyone would be happy. You know, the vaccine, we'll keep our fingers crossed. I'd love to be able to get out there again. Bay Area is one of the best. It's a mecca for book lovers and writers, too. We love to go there. 
we just have to wait and see how things shake out and, and hope. I mean, things are definitely going to change. But, you know, the one good thing, Richard, and you know this, is uh, people are still reading. They're reading a lot. Even though it's the economic times are so difficult, even tragic for a lot of people, being cooped up, a lot of people have, have been doing a lot of all kinds of reading. So there's, there's hope for that. That's not a bad thing. And thank you for having me on. You've been listening to an interview with Carl Hyacin, whose latest novel is Squeeze Me. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com and feel free to search out other interviews at bookwaves.com or on the kpfa.org website. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast.